Hey, what's up? This is State of the Revolution, the Michigan Progressive Podcast. I'm Benjamin Klon. Zachary Reinhardt. And Joseph Hardy. Today, we are incredibly excited to bring you an interview with a very special guest, someone who's been doing a lot of important work, uh, someone who we on this show have a great deal of respect for. Uh, she is the Attorney General of the State of Michigan, uh, Dana Nessel. Dana, thank you so much for joining us today. We know you're really, really busy, so uh, let's just get into some questions. Um, since since you took office, uh, what's been the most unexpected challenge to accomplishing your priorities? Hmm. I, I guess what I would say is sort of the constant threats from the legislature to defund um, the office and to try to sort of interfere with what my agenda is here. Now, we, you know, we got lucky to the extent that um, these draconian cuts that had been proposed by the legislature, some of them were over 15% of my budget would have been decimated. They did not come to pass, and I was able to maintain my budget, which I was very, you know, happy about, obviously. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there is always that threat because the appropriations to this office do flow from the legislature. So whenever they sort of have disagreements with things that I'm doing in this office, you know, that, that threat is always made. And, you know, to be, to be fair, it's not the first time this has happened. And I know that, you know, for instance, when Jennifer Granholm was the attorney general and John Engler was, um, uh, the governor, you know, there were a lot of threats that were made. I know to her then in regard to some controls that the governor had in terms of funding of the office. And I, I think probably similar things happened when Jennifer Granholm was governor and Mike Cox. With Attorney General, so I'm not the first AG um, to have that uh, to have that situation happen. But you know, it's hard when you're moving forward on cases that you think are incredibly important in order to best represent the, the 10 million people that that I serve uh, to constantly have threats that you know my budget's going to be decimated. That is a little difficult. Okay. Well, actually, you know, we want to let's let's get into some some issues and policy stuff here. I think, Joe, you had a question? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, uh, we were just, you know, wondering if you, you know, could just tell us a little bit about your efforts to shut down what has now become, you know, the infamous Enbridge Line 5 pipeline, which is, um, you know, um, which Enbridge is trying to, you know, put up in the the Straits of uh, Mackinac. Right. So as as I know all three of you uh, are well aware this was a commitment that I made during the course of the campaign. And to be honest, it was one of the biggest reasons that I decided to run for this office. I knew that the uh, attorney general had great authority in terms of uh, ensuring that a company like Enbridge could, uh, you know, could not operate without um, any sorts of restrictions and could basically, um, but what I saw to be the biggest hazard that's posed to the Great Lakes right now, which is, of course, this 66-year-old, almost 67-year-old twin pipeline that runs under the Straits. Um, only about 5% of any of the energy that runs through there actually services, you know, Michiganders or, or Americans at all. Most of it goes back into Sarnia, and it's for Canadian citizens. Um, and I, I think that the jeopardy of Line five, and this is what I what I maintained prior to taking office, and I'm even more convinced of it now. You know, it's an incredible hazard, and it'll be devastating to the state of Michigan. I think in the neighborhood of six. 
billion dollars of economic losses are projected. Um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that will lose their source of drinking water. And, you know, Michigan will never be the same for any of us in the event uh, that there is a rupture of, of a, a pipeline that was never, ever intended to run nearly as long as it has. So what happened during the lame duck period, as I know you guys are aware, is once uh, I was elected and once Governor Whitmer was uh, elected, and we had, of course, both vowed to shut down Line 5, the lame duck legislature um, passed this um, Mackinac Corridor uh, authority that was to build a tunnel uh, under the Straits of Mackinac and really did not require uh, Enbridge to shut down Line 5 in any particular time span. It was just whenever the tunnel was ready, no matter how long that took. Um, and, but in doing so, it was a very hurried and rushed piece of legislation. It was not well-crafted. Uh, and so on my very first day in office, and not just my first day in office, my first minute in office, literally uh, within the first minute or two after I was sworn in, I uh, received an envelope, uh, sort of Willy Wonka style, but it was not. It was not a golden ticket. It was. Um, it was a request from the governor for an attorney general opinion as to the constitutionality of the uh, Mackinac Straits Corridor Authority statute. And you know, we reviewed it. We reviewed it very carefully. We found that it clearly violated the title object clause of the Michigan Constitution, and that's a clause that indicates that no law. Uh, shall embrace more than one object, uh, which should be expressed in the title. So they had violated that in their very um, hurried efforts to get this passed before Governor Whitmer or I took office. Um, and after uh, my AG opinion indicated that the act was unconstitutional, the governor then refused to um, order any further permitting um, and that found that the permits that had been ordered at that, that juncture um, were null and void as a result um, because they emanated from an unconstitutional statute. So, you know, the, the governor, I think, tried for some period of time to negotiate with Enbridge to see if they would come up with a concrete timetable to shut down Line 5. And I know she was looking at something in the neighborhood of two years. Um, and, you know... They, Enbridge wasn't having it. Uh, they wanted to be able, they feel as though they have the ability to run that, um, you know, that pipeline under the Straits of Mackinac just as long as they wish. <laughs> so, um, after, after it made, it was clear to me that they weren't going to make any progress and that Enbridge had walked away from the table, the negotiating table. So at that point, Enbridge filed a lawsuit, uh, against the state of Michigan. Uh, in the Court of Claims. And so we are defending the state in that action. And pleadings have been uh, have been filed, although there's no hearing that's scheduled yet. And then separately, um, and that, that just deals with the, the tunnel agreement, separately, I went ahead then and I filed a separate lawsuit in Ingham County against Enbridge Energy um, in order to decommission Line 5. And we talked a lot about um, various different reasons why the continued operation of Line 5 was illegal. Um, but more than anything, we talked about the public trust doctrine, which I know you guys can appreciate, which is that, very simply, a natural resource, such as the Great Lakes, such as our water, is held in trust by the state for its citizens, and that the state must prioritize 
the interest of the public over that of a private corporation. And I just, I have never been able to understand why Enbridge gets to dictate to the state of Michigan um, whether or not we can have this dangerous pipeline remain in the water indefinitely, understanding that it's only a matter of time before it causes what I think might be the biggest oil spill in American history. And I think it'll actually eclipse the BP spill. It'll be um, so wide ranging. Yeah. So, so, I mean, last month, last month, uh, Bridge Magazine published an article, uh, an opinion article by Enbridge's VP of U.S. Operations, in which he claimed that over the last decade, Enbridge has transported more than 24.6 billion barrels of oil with a safe delivery record of 99.9997171%. So even with that record, are, are you are you saying that you don't trust this multinational oil transportation company? <laughs> <laughs> well, first, is that Benjamin? Is that you? Who is this? Yeah. Who said that? Yeah. Okay. So let me ask you this. Can you just imagine, for instance, can you imagine if you had a 66 or 67-year-old man or woman who went to the doctor and the doctor saying to that man or woman, well, you know, you've been pretty healthy. You've been mostly healthy for 67 years. So as a result, I can tell you that in the next 10 years, you'll also be perfectly healthy. I mean, this pipeline was never, ever uh, intended to run this long. And I've actually talked to pipeline experts um, that tell me that these pipelines aren't supposed to last more than 35 years, let alone 66 or 67 years. Um, And, you know, what I know is this. There have been multiple anchor strikes in that area that have hit uh, other lines that are right near line five. So we've been really lucky. You know, of course, there was this um, anchor strike in April of 2018, and we barely escaped um, a massive rupture. And in fact, it did it, it damaged the line. Fortunately, it didn't rupture it. But no, I don't trust Enbridge. I mean, that's the long and the short of it. They have lied to this state um, over and over again for years. They're obviously uh, responsible for the biggest inland oil spill uh, I believe in American history with, um, you know, uh, the Kalamazoo spill at line 6B. And no, I think they're just going to continue to keep operating as long as they can because it's profitable for them and without consideration of the consequences to the state. All they care about is how much money they can make. Um, and that's it. And my job is not to protect a private, um, you know, Canadian corporation. My job is to protect the natural resources of uh, the state of Michigan, and that's what I've done. Amen. Amen. Now, uh, in addition to shutting down Line Five, um, what else, you know, are is your office doing to, you know, help Michigan um, get off fossil fuels, um, or also, you know, um, protect the environment just from the the fossil fuels that are um, being run through our, our state right now? Because I know a lot of uh, citizens, including my uh, myself, are worried about one of these one of these pipeline spills happening, and these companies sort of paying fines and you know, going right back to business as usual. So um, I guess we're um, you know, curious as to any other efforts your, your office is doing to sort of remedy uh, or head off this problem. Well, sure. So our uh, special litigation department here uh, deals with the Public Service Commission. And the Public Michigan Public Service Commission, they're the ones that have to improve um, what they call IRPs, integrated resource plans, for the uh, utility companies. So we're really active and, you know, we have been working and, and sometimes intervening in cases involving these these plans that forecast for decades out um, what kind of energy 
various utilities are going to use. And so one of the things that we were pretty happy about is that, for instance, consumers um, really has been working, you know, fairly aggressively to try to move towards renewables. We are trying um, to encourage DTE to do the same thing and then all the um, utility companies to move as quickly as possible uh, towards renewables and to intervene in cases where we don't think that that is happening. Um, but, you know, you may have noticed, again, um, not to get back to all of our lawsuits against the Trump administration, but many of them deal with the impact of climate change. And, you know, this isn't just some sort of, um, you know, I don't know, ambiguous philosophy about climate change. This is impacting our state right now. Um, and it's going to get so much worse so quickly. So whether we're talking about the impact uh, on agriculture, obviously we've seen this enormously high levels of the Great Lakes um, that is causing massive property damage. Um, really, the list just goes on and on as to how it's impacting us. And the Trump administration, not just the, you know, the Paris Accords, but they are perpetually in a place where they're rolling back any protections that were put in place by the Obama administration, uh, and they're doing it uh, in an illegal manner. They're they're not following proper administrative rules and procedures in order to do that. So whether it has to do with us um, joining in some of these cases involving, um, you know, greenhouse gas emissions um, or uh, cases of that nature, the office has been really active. And we also pulled out, of course, as soon as I got into office, uh, there were a number of cases where uh, the Schutte administration had been supporting fossil fuels in the uh, oil and gas companies, had filed uh, amici on behalf of companies like Exxon in cases that involved climate change. And, you know, I- I'm dedicated to ensuring the public health, welfare, and safety of Michiganders uh, and to protect our natural resources, which I'm obligated to. I took an oath uh, when I was sworn into office. I took an oath on the Constitution, and the Constitution actually has not one but two provisions which call for the protection of our natural resources. And so that is what I feel like I'm obligated to do, and, and that is what we will continue to do as long as I'm in office. Well, speaking of uh, <clears throat> arguing with the, well, uh, getting into competitions with the um, national side of things, Michigan is within 100 miles of our national border, and the entire state is therefore within the border zone, which gives Customs and Border Protection Agents expanded search and seizure rights. Uh, to what extent is your office willing to cooperate with federal agencies like uh, <clears throat> CBP and ICE, and uh, what, do you, uh, what can you do to help protect undocumented people here in the state of Michigan? Well, you know, firstly, they, we we haven't been asked to do that. Um, and what I've made clear is this. I am a state actor, um, and I run a state department, uh, and it is my interest in uh, defending and enforcing state law. So, um, obviously, when it comes to federal law, when it comes to um, issues of those who are undocumented, You know, if they're not violating state law, I really don't feel as though it's incumbent upon me to use state resources uh, in order to intercede in any sort of, um, you know, federal efforts to deport people. And and honestly, our office has also been very active in terms of and very aggressive uh, in opposing the Trump administration uh, in terms of their 
really vile treatment of all immigrant communities. And so we have filed case after case after case, whether it's the public charge rule, um, which impacts legal immigrants who are trying to get their green cards and says that they, you know, cannot utilize public assistance, um, whether it's us getting involved in um, assisting uh, children who are, you know, detained at the border and not provided with basic necessities like toothpaste and soap and, and medical uh, attention, um, or whether it's combating the asylum rule, which, you know, impacts the ability uh, of asylum seekers to come to the United States, even when they've been persecuted in their native uh, countries, we are doing our best in this office to try to protect immigrant communities. Uh, I, I'm old school, and um, I, I'm of the belief that um, immigration is what makes our country great and strong. Um, I come from a family of immigrants. Uh, and I'm, I'm really appalled, um, at the tactics of the, of the Trump administration. And so, you know, it's been, uh, my policy and my, my posture in this office, uh, that we're not going to utilize our resources to, you know, to deport people essentially and to put people into situations where they are in custody when they have not violated any state laws. I'm here to enforce the state laws. That's what I do. That's great to hear. Yeah, it's great to hear. You know, uh, you know, ourselves and our listeners, we, we definitely love us some lawsuits against the Trump administration. So <laughs> thank you for all that. Um, um, you know, just uh, before we, um, you know, um, end this interview, just want to talk, just talk a little bit about um, the expungement bill package that um, has has come up in the recently in the past few weeks. Um, and know that we know that you were recently at a hearing in front of the House Judicial Committee, um, giving some of your recommendations for some of these expungement bills. And um, I just wanted to ask you some some questions, basically about the the um, some factors such the the traffic offense exe- exemption. Um, we saw that you were concerned about um, some of these exemptions um, being a little bit too draconian, and um, we're just wondering if you could if you could just elaborate a little bit uh, um, on how you would like to see these expungement bills uh, improved. Yeah, so you know this is an area of the law that I'm infinitely familiar. Um, I spent many years, you guys probably know, as, as a assistant prosecutor for Wayne County, and then many years um, handling uh, criminal defense cases um, in, you know, in the city of Detroit. And so I, I filed countless numbers of of expungement cases or, or applications to set aside a conviction, as they're called. Um, but more so than all of the cases that I filed were the calls that I got each and every day. Uh, about the people who wanted to get expungements but were not eligible to do so. And so one of the things that really bothered me was the fact that you were not permitted to get an expungement for anything that was a crime under the uh, motor vehicle code. So for really minor traffic offenses that that are misdemeanors, you you couldn't get some and those ever expunged, they stay on your record forever. And um, and depending on how many of them there were, it meant that you were ineligible to get a felony expunged as well. Uh, and that's something that bothered me, and it continues to bother me. Uh, and it's something that I spoke out about, about not having so many exemptions and not having something specific to the motor vehicle code that wouldn't allow you to get those expunged. And the thing that I can't understand is, 
you know, we allow people, and even under these new bills, that you would continue to allow people to get expungements for things like assault with intent to do great bodily harm less than murder, which, um, you know, there are many cases where people get shot or stabbed or beaten over a head with a baseball bat within an inch of their lives. But if the, you know, finder of fact believes that you were just trying to really severely injure the person as opposed to murder them, as opposed to kill them, you're eligible for expungement. Same thing with an unarmed robbery case. You could um, have somebody that goes after, you know, a, a senior citizen in a parking lot of a grocery store and, you know, punches, you know, and whatever, a 90-year-old woman in the face and snatches their purse. Uh, and that woman ends up falling and, and breaking something, you know, that, that person is eligible for an expungement, but not for minor traffic offenses. <laughs> that just didn't make any sense to me. I thought it was crazy. Um, oh, that's and, insane. <laughs> yeah. And, and I have to say, there's a lot of people out there. This is, this is a point of, of, of contention for me. Uh, and, and not everybody agrees with me, but you know, you, even under the current bill package, you could never get an OWI, an operating while intoxicated, expunged, ever. And, you know, to me, that's fundamentally unfair. I believe on being very strong in terms of cracking down on drunk driving, and we we do have, um, you know, some pretty severe penalties in place. I've represented and prosecuted many, many people of that offense. But is it the kind of crime that's so significant that your whole life, that should remain on your record when, again, assault with intent to do great bodily harm and unarmed robbery, you can get expunged. That doesn't make sense to me. And the other thing that I was really interested in was making sure that uh, it was easier for people with low-level misdemeanor and felony marijuana crimes could have their records expunged. And I, I in fact, I actually um, proposed a substitute bill um, that I thought was just a an easier and better bill uh, than what they currently had, which is House Bill 4982. So I I actually drafted my own bill on this because I just wasn't really happy with what they had, and I'm it's under consideration right now, um, and I'm I'm really hopeful that they will adopt it because I I think it allows for many many more people to have their marijuana related offenses set aside. Um, and it's an easier process than what's proposed right now. Yeah, uh, what are the limitations on House Bill 4982 that your bill um, sort of removes or improves on? Well, so, for instance, um, basically House Bill 4982 indicates that a person convicted of one or more marijuana, uh, one or more misdemeanor marijuana offenses, if the offense would not have been a crime if committed on or after December 6, 2018, which, of course, is when Prop 1, which was passed last year, went into effect, may petition the court to set aside the misdemeanor offense or offenses. And then it's got a section that states that the court must grant an application to set aside a conviction if the court determines that the conduct that resulted in the conviction does not constitute a criminal violation of the law in the state on the date of the application. Well, here, here's one of my problems with that. Firstly, it, it doesn't indicate who the burden of proof is on to show that this misdemeanor marijuana offense uh, would not have been a crime if it was committed after December 6th of last year. And so I presume that that burden ends up falling on the applicant. Uh, it doesn't cover a very large number of ordinance violations that are issued by local, you know, political subdivisions like, you know, cities and municipalities. And we know that many of these convictions 
uh, are not under state law. They're under ordinances. It doesn't cover low-level felony offenses, um, you know, under 20 plants, under 5 kilos of marijuana. Um, and, you know, I just thought there was a way that we could include more people but also make it easier. So just some of the highlights, I guess, of, of my version, uh, you know, it it specifically, our version specifically permits an applicant to, you know, set aside a local ordinance uh, violation if it's, you know, basically a misdemeanor possession or use. Um, and rather than make the applicant prove that the ordinance, you know, substantially corresponds to state law, our, our version really has what we call a, re- a rebuttable presumption that can be uh, rebutted by a prosecutorial agency, but basically... How our version works is that the the burden of proof uh, is on the prosecutor, not the applicant, to show why the uh, applicant's petition should be denied. Um, but, you know, if they don't object within 60 days, then it automatically goes through. And the thing is, we think that the prosecutors are in a better position to make that case than an applicant. And I will tell you this, after many years of practicing, you know, if you are somebody that got convicted of one of these, say, low-level uh, felony offenses in the city of Detroit 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and now you need to find the discovery in your case, you have to find the police reports, you got to find the investigators' reports, you got to find the lab reports to show how what the quantity was, I mean, good luck to you. Good luck in finding that. It's not in the court file, and if you try to order the police jacket, um, most of the time you're not going to be successful. And I think that for... You know, pro se applicants, people who need these expungements the most, um, that can't hire a lawyer to do all that discovery for them, it's going to be practically impossible for them to prove their case. So we think, you know, make the prosecutor prove uh, that there's a reason that the court should not grant the application and have the presumption be that we do want to expunge these types of offenses. And that's why, you know, the, the vast majority of voters last year decided to make this legal, right? And so we think that the expungement statute got to reflect that. Couldn't agree more, honestly. It's, it sounds like you uh, want to make it more accessible and uh, make it more um, uh, a way of <clears throat> making sure that uh, everyone has access to it. Because uh, I could be wrong, but based on what you're, you're describing, um, considering the burden of proof will be on the applicant, um, it could require uh, a lot of financial resources or a lawyer or such to uh, actually get that process rolling forward, whereas underneath yeah, your it, bill, it, it doesn't require that uh, unless the prosecutor finds that uh, the expungement is uh, not uh, worthy or, or uh, possible. Exactly. I, I think it's going to be a lot easier for applicants. And frankly, um, I, I, you know, I think I'm going to have the support of the Prosecuting Attorneys Association on this because um, there are a lot of things about this bill that they also like better than what the House version is. And, I, and, and honestly, I applaud the legislature for trying to be proactive. I applaud them for trying to work aggressively um, in order to enact these expungement laws um, and, and to broaden the scope of who is eligible. It's important. But, you know, if we're going to do this, let's do it right. You know, let's not just pass the first thing that comes through. Let's do this the right way. And let's make certain that the people who need this the most are are able to access it. Right. Well, Dana, we know, we know you got to get going soon, uh, but real quick, 
Uh, before you do, I think we wanted to we wanted to ask you some lightning round questions here, and we, it's spooky season, so they're Halloween themed. Okay. <laughs> okay, got it. All right. All right. So, slasher movies or ghost movies? Uh, I don't know both. Can I say both? Can <laughs> sure. I just? I don't mean to interrupt your lightning round, but we're actually we have a competition at the AG's office. Every single floor um, decorates their lobby with a different theme. And everybody is wearing costumes, and this is the most fun that I'm ever going to have because I get to pick <laughs> best costume uh, for the office in both the Detroit and Lansing offices. So it's oh, kind of my dream. Oh, so awesome. I love I love I love all horror movies. So okay. I'm going to have. To, I'm sorry. All right. That's great. <laughs> uh, visit a haunted house or walk through a haunted corn maze. Both. I'm sorry. They're both great. <laughs> I do that every year. I, I love both. Honestly, it's my dream. When I finish my time in office. Um, I just, all I want is to like purchase my own haunted house and have it run, you know, 12 months out of the year and then like rent it out for parties and stuff. Is that like a bad goal to have? It's my dream. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Scary costumes or funny costumes? I, I, why are you guys doing this to me? I love both of those. They're both amazing. I have to tell you. I can't, I, you can't make me choose. That's like asking me to choose between my children, only harder. <laughs> okay, homemade costumes or store-bought costumes? Um, well, you know, I, I think they're both good, but I, I like the homemade ones because it's just that extra personal touch, you know, that... Um, and also, I, why is there a, a, a sexy Mr. Rogers costume? Like, <laughs> what? That exists. Mr. Rogers sexy in the first place is what Jesus I have to say. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's a real thing, by the way. Like, that, look that, it up. That's more terrifying than I think anything I've heard <laughs> <laughs> this Halloween season okay, so you far. Want, you want? You want to hear what my costume is this year? Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. All right. So I'm um, I'm going in a group of four. Um, and um, I'm Veronica Sawyer. Do you know who Veronica Sawyer is? If you can place this, because I know you guys are like all millennials, right? So I'm going to be so impressed. Uh, uh, <laughs> don't you go, don't Google it, because I know that's what you're doing right now. No, 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 no cheating here. All right, I will say she's the main character in um, an amazing film from the 1980s, starring Winona Ryder. So not Stranger Things. <laughs> <laughs> like there are things that happen before the current decade. <laughs> all right, it's from the movie Heather's. Okay, it's still one of my favorite movies. Uh, even though, all right, even though some would would argue that it was inappropriate on a number of different levels, but it was an amazing movie. So I'm I'm going as. Uh, Veronica and uh, I have three friends that are going as the Heather's. So. <laughs> That's great. We're, we're millennials, so as soon as they make the Disney remake of that, we'll make we'll make sure to uh, catch up on Heather's. <laughs> now, you know what? I'm the Attorney General of the state, and I order all three of you to watch that movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, damn it, guys! Attempt. <laughs> all right. Um. So, Freddie, Jason, or Michael Myers? Ah. Uh. You know what? You know what I like about Michael Myers because it's like classic, and and you you look at it and you're like, well, that's not that scary, but it is. It's weirdly scary. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd go with that. I think also it's just easier. Great. Okay, and yeah. one one final question. <laughs> yeah, the, probably the most important question uh, on the podcast: uh, candy corn or the sweet release of death? 
<laughs> I, I'm going with candy corn. I know it's unpopular, oh. but I'm telling you right now. You know what? No, I like candy corn, and I will defend. I will defend the sanctity of candy corn all day. Every day. Candy corn is getting a bad rap, is what I think. And um, I'm bringing. I'm making it popular again. I don't care what I have to do. <laughs> I think you have better uh, chances of shutting down line five. <laughs> oh, oh, all right. Well, I'm going to prove you wrong. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we are out of time here. It's th- Dana, hey, again. Can I just say one thing? Can I say one thing to your listeners? Yes. Yes, please. All right. I just, I just want to thank. I know you guys uh, are all involved with the Progressive Caucus in Michigan, and I, I want to say this for for people who thought that you couldn't get a candidate like myself into office, or if you did, that I would, you know, waver in my commitments that I made to protect the people of the state. Uh, over over corporations, um, you know, I, I think that I'm sort of living proof that you can have a more progressive individual into in really important um, roles uh, in elected office, and that when you do, you can actually make a difference. And so, I just really want to thank uh, the progressive community in Michigan for being so supportive, for coming down to the convention on the biggest um, ice. Uh, and, and rainstorm uh, of uh, and snowstorm of, of 2018, and and for supporting me and and doing the hard work of getting me into office. And I all I can say is I intend to keep all my promises as much as I can, and I'm able to and to keep my commitments um, and to do what's best for um, the residents of the state. So I want to say thanks to to all your listeners and, and to all three of you as well. Absolutely. Well, well, we got your back because uh, you have ours. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank thank you. Thank you so much for everything you've done, everything you're doing. Thank you for taking the time to be here with us today. We really appreciate it. Happy to do so. All right. See you soon. See ya.